Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, host of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Delian Asparov, who's a principal at Founders Fund. Based in Miami and Silicon Valley, the firm has long been known for backing some of the most category-defining companies in the world, including SpaceX, Palantir, Facebook, Airbnb, and Stripe. While at Founders Fund, Delian also co-founded Varda Space Industries and had previously worked at Coastal Ventures. I had a lot of fun on this week's show as we talked about a number of things, including incubations within larger firms, the arc of where he sees technology and what's going to drive innovation in the coming years, and why regional hubs like Miami will be major forces and drivers of innovation. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Today's episode is sponsored by Pacific Western Bank, a full-service commercial bank with over $34 billion in assets. The venture banking team at PacWest specializes in financial products and services for both startups and the venture and private equity funds that back them. I've worked with many of their team members over the last two decades, and I can attest to their commitment to bringing a high-touch and personalized experience for every startup and fund manager client they have. So whether you're a founder or a fund manager at any stage of development and you want to find out more, check them out at www.pacwest.com. Delian, great to see you and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be on today. Well, this is going to be a really fun conversation given how multifaceted your background is and actually going from a waffle boy to becoming an entrepreneur and getting into tech to now being a full-time investor at Founders Fund. Tell us how you got interested in tech in the first place and what led you to investing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I had always been a sort of computer scientist. My dad, uh, you know, studied computer science and statistics and was a sort of um, software engineer for basically his entire career. And so I think like my first like website I put up like I think summer between eighth and ninth grade. I had my first paid software gig like summer between ninth and tenth grade. And so uh, the Waffle Boy experience was actually I was like, you know, I can tell where this life is headed and it's unlikely to have a service job in its life unless I intentionally do it now. Uh, and I think that's an important skill set to have. I think it's like humbling to have to just like, you know, kind of get paid for just working with your hands. And so I actually like had a much higher paying job the prior summer where again, I was a software engineer. And then I was like, I'm gonna be a waffle boy this summer. I'm not gonna do any software engineering. Did a summer of that and I was like, this isn't for me. Like I'm not a very good waffle boy. I basically like, I kind of quit at the end of the summer to go back to high school. But I think I kind of got fired too. Like I think they were kind of at their wits end with me of like, I really just liked overselling the waffles more so than I like making them. Um, and so, yeah, I basically had this like software engineering background, thought that I was headed into the world of like academia. Like I really liked like software, robotics, space. And so the plan was, you know, both my parents are sort of PhD academic types. My mom's a professor. My dad's basically a professor. Uh, and so I was like, okay, you know, my path in life is going to be academic robotic space. That points me towards undergrad at MIT, grad school, you know, at Caltech, and then basically working at JPL slash NASA on like, you know, robotic space missions. Uh, and basically freshman year at MIT had a couple of sort of chance encounters, the most like maybe influential being with this guy Bilal Zuberi, who's actually now a uh, partner at Lex Capital, basically met me on I think like my fourth or fifth day of undergrad and just like introduced me to the world of venture capital startups, just like a potentially alternative path that had a much nearer term uh, and faster path to basically like impact on the world. Uh, so I sort of got hooked uh, on that. I started going to these like, you know, sort of weekly dinners at MIT. They were like these like entrepreneurship dinners uh, hosted and funded by the like entrepreneurship center uh, and then just like very quickly got obsessed started like uh, you know reading about all these things reading hacker news and sort of you know had this idea stuck in my head where I was like man Jack Dorsey seems like he's like the best entrepreneur right now I got to figure out how to go like work for him uh, and so that basically spring of my like freshman year you know sort of hustled my way into getting a summer internship with Square and so moved out to you know Silicon Valley whatever like you know late May of 2012 fell in love over the course of that summer like had a really awesome experience in the summer 
summer of 2012, like working for Square. I think, you know, I interviewed when the company was like 100, 120 people. By the time I joined, it was like 150. And then by the time I left, it was like 300. So like, I remember when like I left the like Android engineering team at the end of the summer, uh, one of the other engineers was like, oh, fuck, like you're a intern. Like you're not a full timer. Like you've been here longer than the rest of us. And I was like, yeah, but I'm actually like just an intern. And I guess I'm going to head back to school slash head back to school with the intention of figuring out how to drop out and get back here as soon as possible. Because I was like, Square is awesome, but you know, I'm young enough that, you know, the risk reward curve, uh, I should probably like, you know, go start my own thing rather than like working at a bigger company. And so I was lucky enough to, you know, be roommates with a guy that was friends with the Teal Fellow, learned about that program, applied, and then managed to, you know, make it out sort of full time to Silicon Valley, May of 2013. So yeah, thank you, Bilal, for, uh, you know, teaching me about startups and, uh, you know, eventually leading me out to Silicon Valley. It's a really interesting story. You think about 2013, you drop out of MIT to pursue being a, you know, a startup entrepreneur, which comes with a lot of risk. And then ultimately you did that for four years and then took on a job eventually with uh, Keith over at Coastal Adventures. And I always think about as you go through your career, you're always making decisions that have opportunity costs. Why did you decide to go into venture versus staying within, you know, the operating role, either running, running a startup or actually working for um, a startup in, in some of the spaces that you really uh, enjoyed? Yeah, so the original like role at Coastal Ventures was actually um, sort of due to me wanting to actually start another startup. I had this idea around cybersecurity insurance that I've been toying around with Keith for a while and didn't feel like I sort of had the right founding team yet to pull the trigger, but I really did want to like start working on it. I had actually been having dinner with Keith talking about this, but then also happened to be talking about a friend that had dropped out of Harvard, but had gone back and finished school and was, you know, graduating that was looking for what his first uh, gig was going to be. Um, and Keith was like, hey, like, I really like your friend. Like, you know, maybe I should hire him as my like chief of staff. And so we talked about what the chief of staff role would entail, how it would work, et cetera. Um, and I remember like calling my friend, you know, literally like right after that dinner and being like, hey, Keith wants to, me to pitch you on this like role. I like, literally got like halfway through the pitch had this like sudden aha moment where I was like, oh fuck, like I think I want to do this and then I'm gonna like work on the cybersecurity insurance like on the side, uh, you know, idea on the side while doing it. Uh, and so literally I was like doing this call like outside Keith's house after this dinner and then like knocking on his door after I was done with the call and he's like, what the fuck are you still doing here? Like we finished dinner like an hour ago. And I was like, I've been outside on this call, but like by the way, I think I just want the job. Like, what do you think about me being your chief of staff? And then I'm gonna work on this like cybersecurity insurance idea and just use Coastal Ventures and this role as like the platform to find these potential ideal sort of co founders. Um, and in parallel, just learn a lot from you. And he's like, that sounds great. We came to an agreement that I would do it for at least sort of minimum of a year. So even if I did find the exact team, I would still keep doing um, this sort of chief of staff role for at least a year since he was going to have to train me up on it. And I was like, great, I'm happy to do it for a year. And then, you know, I'll go back and you know operate this company. You know, about, let's say, like six or seven months in, I had a couple of different realizations that sort of hit me all at once that convinced me that I should potentially take the idea of, uh, you know, staying in venture capital for the longer term actually made sense because like i mean nowadays i think people think like venture is cool blah 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 but like hell when i was growing up in silicon valley you know 2014 15 16 like venture capital is where you went to retire like you know nobody cool was doing venture capital all the cool people were you know starting companies and i think um, that's still honestly you know mostly the case but i had a sudden realization that it hit me about six months in where two things. The first was that like sort of my personality and skill sets were much more likely to make me a highly effective venture capitalist than they were to make me a highly effective sort of founding CEO. Um, I am, you know, super ADD. I'm super intellectually curious. I like to like, you know, speak my mind even when it's like relatively controversial and, you know, out there takes. Um, and I don't particularly like love managing other people's emotions or, you know, acting as like a, you know, therapist. 
all those things are like huge cons to founder, right? The ideal founders are, you know, monomaniacal, very perfect in their storytelling and are careful to not step over any bounds, like, uh, you know, are very good at being a therapist and, you know, managing people underneath them. And if anything, dislike context switching. I kind of, you know, realized I was like, huh, these things are all huge cons to founder, and yet they're all huge pros as an investor, right? The best investors are intellectually curious and context switching and don't necessarily need to manage people. And so I'd always given, you know, other friends the advice of, you know, when considering various career paths, you should generally likely lean into your strengths rather than try to mitigate your weaknesses because by leaning into your strengths, you're much more likely to be top 1%, top 0.1, top 0.01% uh, of the people you know in that uh, particular category. And so I was like, you know, I think if I really, really worked hard, I could maybe be like a top 10 or top 5% CEO, but it would take like a lot of work. Or I could do the thing that clearly comes much more naturally to like my you know skill set and personality and just do that, and I can probably work like less quote unquote hard, and I'll actually be top 0.1 or 0.01%. And I kind of had this sudden aha moment where, like, I can't describe to you, like, up until then, I'd had this like obsessive, like, since that day with Bilal, and then reading about Silicon Valley, I was like, oh, okay, to be like one of the greats, you have to be a founding CEO. And so, like, I'm gonna be a CEO, I'm gonna be a CEO. And it was literally like obsessive in my mind every day. I was like, in some ways, like, I don't care about the idea, I don't care what I'm working on, but I have to be the CEO. And then it was just like this first crack where I was like, hmm, seems like I can be one of the greats and have a really great impact on the world without necessarily being a CEO. And then who knows, maybe one day I figure out how to, you know, figure out how to do the job half-half and co-found something again one day, which eventually, you know, does happen, you know, four years later. Um, and so, yeah, maybe at month six or seven or so, realized that. And then the second thing was uh, I actually happened to basically stumble across and source uh, an aerospace company uh, that Coastal Ventures ended up investing into uh, at roughly month six or seven. And so the second aha moment that I had was, I'd always really wanted to work in aerospace, but the only models that I had for how to do that were either you went and worked at like SpaceX as an engineer, which I had friends that did that and I didn't really love like the day-to-day -day life of just being an engineer. And then I had, you know, the second type of model, which was like the Jerbertson, Chamath, Elon, et cetera, which was basically like, you gotta get rich in normal tech and then you get to go do space tech. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna do path two, I'm gonna try and get rich in normal tech and then I'm gonna go do space tech. And instead, all of a sudden option three opened itself up to me where I was like, whoa, I get to do aerospace today as like a broke 22 year old by basically like, you know, 23 year old, I think, uh, by finding, you know, these companies that are, you know, really great space companies and then convincing investment firms to invest in them. And then I really actually get exposure to the like world of the commercial space industry and operating within that. And so I had those two aha moments and I was like, oh shit, I got to lean into this hard and I'm going to show that I'm a very good like normal investor, but I'm going to make sure that on the side, I'm constantly building up this like space expertise. And so very intentionally started going to like space conferences and meeting every space CEO and thinking about what ideas would I want to fund, what opportunities were there out there. I started very proactively with my friends that were SpaceX engineers grabbing dinner with them and being like, let me know anytime that you're interested in leaving and wanting to start a company, like I want to like work on something with you. Um, and so those early bets were obviously what eventually led to, you know, what I'm working on today. Going back in a second, you know, you, you're right, Coastal, you sort of make the determination that being a VC is probably better aligned with your skill set. You know, you still have to do the normal tech. You have this affinity for, for space. And I, I think that goes back a long time, well before even being part of the tech world. But there's a couple options that people have when they're thinking about being an investor and, and starting off in the early days. In today's world, that means either joining a firm, like you ultimately went from Coastal to Founders with, with Keith, or actually starting your own firm, where you get a taste of actually running a company, but in the context of an investment firm. Why did you decide to go to Founders versus just start your own tech or space tech type of firm? 
Yeah, I do think that fundamentally, uh, venture investing is an apprenticeship, you know, based uh, uh, industry where I think it's far easier to learn from other really great people than to try to like you know reengineer from scratch. And that honestly, like most things in life, are easiest learned via an apprenticeship. And that was incredibly clear to me if I like looked at let's say like peers um, that started around the same time frame that I did in venture, I like four and a quarter years ago. Those that had very tight mentorships and apprenticeship like opportunities have definitely far outperformed the ones that were sort of out on an island and expected to sort of learn and operate entirely on their own. Founding a firm can make a lot more sense once you've had that apprenticeship experience. I think early on in a career, it's not like it's impossible to succeed that way, but you're really in it for the grind. And in some ways, I would much prefer to spend ideally the majority or 99% of my time doing the things that I really love and think that I'm good at. Like, I think I'm pretty good at, like, for having been a former founder, I'm pretty good at um, advising other founders, finding very interesting ideas to invest in, um, you know, figuring out how to, uh, you know, convince those founders to take our capital, those things I'm quite good at and enjoy doing. Do I love, like, pitching limited partners to invest into a fund? Not particularly, and so this was a hack to, yeah, maybe it constrains the upside or maybe you don't get as much ownership, et cetera. But you know, I find that I didn't really want to apply my like quote unquote entrepreneurial independent energies towards actually like making an investment firm. I was much more interested in, and this was definitely an explicit part of the conversation uh, when I joined Founders Fund, was interested in at some point incubating something and applying the entrepreneurial spirit towards that. Um, and so, you know, I think there are plenty of investment firms in the world. Are you really going to create the next greatest, you know, hot new thing? I mean, maybe, but like, I think, you know, that isn't bringing that much innovation and interesting, you know, things to the world versus like applying that same entrepreneurial energy to company building to me is sort of much more, you know, exciting. Uh, but obviously, you know, I've had friends and, you know, peers that have, uh, you know, done phenomenally well, you know, taking the sort of purely independent approach, but just wasn't something that I was super interested in. So given all that, let's talk about your work at Founders Fund. And one of the things that struck me as unique was you starting a company or at least co-founding a company in Varda while you were a full-time investor. And we're starting to see those type of models emerge. And certainly in the past, we've seen things like EIR models, incubations uh, with firms like Sutter Hill, and then now studio models. But maybe you can walk us through a little bit about how does that work for you and within Founders Fund, what does it actually mean to co-found a company while you're a full-time investor? Yeah, there's definitely a couple of different models, most of which I'm typically like not very interested in. So let's call the, the first most common just being like the EIR model. Typically, you know, for sure there's some success with EIR models, but I don't typically love them because they tend to create a relatively like artificial constraint on like you come in basically without an idea and the firm tells you, you've got to start something within a year, either we'll fund it at the end of the year or you're out of here at the end of the year. And so it creates this like artificial time constraint that I don't think is like the healthiest way to sort of start um, uh, start a company. I think you should start a company when you have an idea that's really itching at you uh, and you just can't get out of your head um, and like need to build as opposed to try to like force yourself into you know a company. And so I don't necessarily love the EIR model. Um, the second model, uh, which I'd call like the like venture studio model, I, people that only focus on incubations, um, and so you know maybe the you know best example of this being Sutter Hill Ventures, right? You know they basically uh, only do uh, incubations. Uh, Snowflake obviously being you know their best example, but they have sort of many more coming down the pipe that are quite quite good. And that model not necessarily be interesting to me because um, it's only incubations typically, right? Uh, and those do tend to have sort of like, you know, more success, uh, but you do need to do a lot of them. Uh, and so you can't spend as much time on any one individual one. And so it feels like in some ways, like, 
you sort of have all the downsides of investing. I, your time is very split amongst all your companies. And yes, you're more involved in each individual one and you help kick it off the ground, but there's no one that you can feel true, true ownership over. But without all the upsides of investing, i.e., you know, I can invest in any company, you know, and whatever, you know, any founding team builds. So um, I wasn't super interested in the venture studio model. And the third model being the relatively unique model that so far, at least, I think only, uh, you know, let's say like, you know, Founders Fund and a very small handful of others have like, you know, truly succeeded at scale which is you still kind of keep investing in a variety of different external companies at an aggressive pace, but then you choose one and exactly basically one company to really focus as like your, you know, external incubation. And so you get that real sense of ownership, you know, control, something that you're like truly, you know, proud of. But while not being constrained to only investing in ideas that you come up with, but being able to invest in, I do really like the process of like a founder comes and pitches me on something that maybe a lot of other investors think is crazy, wouldn't succeed unless we funded it. And then getting to fund those companies, those are in some ways the most emotionally rewarding investments because uh, you're getting to enable somebody else's dream. Um, and that doesn't always happen, right? For sure, a lot of the companies that we fund, a million other people would have also maybe funded. Uh, but there's, there's you know occasional exceptions where we're truly out on an island in comparison to all the other venture investors. That's kind of the model that, you know, Founders Fund takes. Um, and so it's like, you know, I'm definitely not starting any other incubations anytime soon. Um, but I really like that model, both getting to aggressively invest at a top tier level while also running one and exactly one incubation, which we've done with, you know, Trey Stevens doing Andrel and Peter back in 2004 doing Palantir. So you started Varda, I, I think it was like mid last year. So 2020. And I, I think this was a few months before you ultimately recruited Will over to become CEO. And I know Will came over from SpaceX. But are there any challenges in terms of like when you do start a company and incubate it to actually bring in talent when the person that you're bringing in didn't wasn't part of the co-founding team? Yeah, I mean, I do think this is, uh, you know, the trickiest part of incubations. And what I'd say is like the idea and the like, you know, potential for VAR wasn't real until like after I decided on like, you know, Will and the founding team, like, it definitely felt like, Will was there basically since day one because there was just no way it was going to happen without Will. Uh, and then, by the way, he has a lot of like, this is not, uh, you know, unlike the venture studio model where they really do take a lot of the company up front, they get it up to a significant like level and then they like sometimes will recruit in a CEO. This was, you know, very different. And, you know, I'd say, you know, Andrew and Palantir were similar to this where it's just like, the incubation didn't exist until after we had found the founding team. And so that was most of the focus was, um, you know, I've been thinking about the idea that Farda's, you know, working on, I like, uh, you know, sort of microgravity factories or microgravity manufacturing uh, for almost a decade. I've been pondering it for, you know, quite some time, studying all the companies that were working on it. Earlier in 2020, I actually considered a variety of companies that were working on it as investments uh, from Founders Fund uh, and for a variety of reasons uh, decided they weren't a fit. And so in sort of late July, early August of last year, I was like, okay, okay, well, you know, I've got some time right now where we're not investing a ton. Let me think about what would the ideal archetype for founding team be? And let's go and try and find those and convince them. And so I basically like articulated and listed a set of things that basically Will Brewery perfectly has, which is like, I wanted somebody from the Dragon Project with entrepreneurial experience and ideally had done angel investing on the side. So I'm not like teaching them about like, you know, fundraising and safes all from scratch. And then ideally a chief scientist that has done microgravity manufacturing uh, before. And so like the early days of the idea weren't like, for sure there's some amount of like, I was starting to do really early exploration of like business model and customers, things like that. But it was like super light. 95% of my focus was like, I need to find this co-founding team that makes it feel real such that, you know, this is sort of day one. And uh, 
uh, yeah, I think it was like third week of August. I'd need to double check, you know, the like Varda Twitter, but somewhere around third week of August or maybe first week of September, um, sort of the three co-founders, myself, Will and Daniel had dinner, you know, down in, uh, I think Manhattan Beach or something like that in LA. Um, and that was like sort of like day one. And then I was like, okay, I think we're doing this. Like, let's start to go through the motions of like, let's talk about equity splits and let's start to like work on the pitch deck and things like that. And it took a couple, you know, more months until we were like really ready to, you know, go out and fundraise. But yeah, it's definitely not like a, I was working on it for months and months and months and had all these things. Then I recruited in Will and it was like artificially, like he was coming in to run something that wasn't really his idea. It was more like, yo, Will, here's an idea that I've been towing for a while. I think you would be a really great CEO for it. And then I think it's in your best interest to have it be an incubation with me rather than doing it on your own. Cause this is a capital intense idea and I can just help speed this up. Where like on your own, I'm sure he would have been able to like raise a seed and then an A and then blah, blah. But I can kind of help you skip a couple of steps. And then, by the way, the net dilution impact is going to be roughly equivalent. We're like, rather than like selling a bunch of the equity to a bunch of external investors over the course of several rounds, just give me some equity and then we'll just like skip basically to, you know, a, you know, $9 million seed, um, i.e. basically a Series A. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so that, that makes a ton of sense. And you look at the space, and pun intended, I guess, that you uh, ultimately started this company. And what we've seen, at least, at least in, in my view, we've seen a lot of investors focus on traditional technologies, many of which are just incremental in nature. And you talked about Bilal being at Lux Capital. Lux does a lot of stuff that, you know, I'd consider true moonshots that are looking at hard technical problems that are in things like whether it's bio, space, or other. Why are we not seeing more funding going into companies that are within spaces like the space sector? Is it because there's not enough entrepreneurs that are looking to solve those problems, or is it something unique about the capital requirements for the companies that get VCs not comfortable with it? Yeah, a couple of different like, you know, sub points within here. The first that I'd say is I actually do think if you study it across biotech, aerospace, et cetera, the number of venture dollars going to these ecosystems is actually increasing quite a bit. Could it be increasing even faster? Potentially. So I do think it's actually, you know, headed in a positive direction. Um, on the like, let's say second point, sort of what is the limiting factor here? I think one of the things that is actually, you know, counterintuitive, and I kind of spun this out into a pithy tweet, and this is somebody else's idea. So I apologize that I'm not crediting them here. Uh, but the idea that I heard at a dinner party that I really enjoyed that sort of stuck with me is that the best social media app founders are actually PhDs in mathematics and the best deep tech founders are actually party promoters. Uh, and that sounds like a little bit pithy, but the reason being that like social apps, they don't need any marketing. What they need is like deep mathematics around how do you architect these like viral loops and behaviors such that like, you know, people will actually just like, you know, use it and cause it to create viral growth. You don't actually need like a marketer. And then for deep tech things, the limiting reagent almost always actually being, can you convince investors that this could potentially return their capital over the course of much longer timeframes than what's typically necessary? And so what you actually need is like the best storytellers. And so the other way that like, you know, Peter at least has like, you know, drilled this into our heads at Founders Fund is that like the bar for ability to fundraise actually for deep tech needs to be even high, like counterintuitively needs to be even higher than for traditional tech because you're not going to be able to raise on metrics or customers or things like that. You're going to have to raise off of like technical progress and like a story. Um, and so you need to be able to, you know, tell that quite, quite well. You know, in terms of like, uh, you know, big shot or big swing, you know, companies like Varda getting founded, the limiting reagent there, I would say is like, kind of people like me, i.e. technical enough that you know where to take a big swing, right? Like, you know, I, I had been thinking about microgravity manufacturing for a decade. 
But then once I started really digging into it, I realized like I've been thinking about it like lightly for a decade. It is very different to be like thinking about it to like now a year in having worked on the company on it. Lordy, lordy, did I not know what I was getting myself into? Like <laughs> it is a you know very different beast than what I expected. But that's part of it is like I'm technical enough to now figure out how to navigate all of the challenges that have come through this, and technical enough to figure out that like Will's a very good CEO for this. Like, am I a very good space engineer? No, but I'm technical enough to assess who is a good space engineer and who isn't. And Will is definitely a very good space engineer. And so the combination of that plus like concise, succinct, and let's say compelling storytelling, that's probably the limiting reagent to starting companies like this because the limiting factor for starting a company like this is convincing investors to fund it, right? There are a variety of people that have thought, I'm not the first person to think about space manufacturing. I can list a hundred or a thousand researchers that have thought about this. Hell, even people that have tried to go out and raise from the venture capital ecosystem before that have thought about this idea. But none of them were able to articulate it in a sort of simple and compelling way um, that sort of you know got investors on board. And this is a particular idea that it's like it's kind of tough to bootstrap. Uh, this one, you know, requires capital markets to sort of you know fund for the first couple of years so you get over the hump of the uh, you know R and D and unit like unit economics curve. What type of DNA then do you need from an investing standpoint? Because you know, we talk about founders trying even from the very beginning investing in companies that, and, and I think Fund One had a lot of capital in one single company that, you know, obviously now has done extremely well, but it was a big risk. And taking big swings are things that, you know, you think investors would do, but the counterintuitive lessons is, are people are actually doing risk mitigation. And so when they look at these sectors that involve a lot of risk, because it could be three, four, five years before there's something, and it could take hundreds of millions of dollars in certain cases. What type of DNA as an investor do you need to get comfortable with those type of investments? How do you guys talk about it within Founders Fund? Yeah, I mean, I do think similar to what you're actually looking for in the founders and the companies, you do need the same thing as like an investor, right? Like take, you know, Josh Wolf, probably one of the like, you know, the best deep tech investors right now. He is an incredible storyteller, right? He's both technical enough to actually understand the like, you know, what is the background across both the biotech, space, hardware, et cetera, companies that he's investing. But then most importantly, he can also help translate that story to the future investors. Because a lot of what you need to do in deep tech is convince future investors to also invest in it while the unit economics, et cetera, don't pencil out. And people need to be able to to trust your judgment so that like, you know, the future, let's say, you know, hedge funds are like, oh, yes, you know, Josh Wolf and Lux is, you know, very good at choosing great deep tech companies. Therefore, if we fund this, it is likely to turn out well. And so there is that sort of like recursive positive signaling that like takes some time to build up. But I think the necessary components of that are like in deep tech, investor signaling in some ways matters even more so than normal tech. Like if you're a killer growth SaaS company, nobody cares who your cap table is, like anybody will invest. In deep tech, like people definitely want Lux, Founders Fund, et cetera, on the cap table feeling comfortable that like, okay, these people have clearly assessed this, know that this is like a viable, you know, technology, legitimate team, et cetera, and feel much more comfortable than, you know, investing sort of more capital later on. And so, um, yeah, I think like similarly, it's, it's definitely a uh, very limited set of people in the venture capital ecosystem that are technical enough to actually, you know, understand the underlying, you know, uh, technologies. Because like, you, you also can't look like a, you know, buffoon and accidentally keep funding like Theranos is where it's like, you know, the technology, you know, clearly, you know, doesn't work or, uh, you know, ultrasound wireless power. Um, you know, we can argue, is it a great company? Is it a great investment? Like, you know, was it the right approach? At the end of the day, that is like a fundamental law of physics that is quite difficult to overcome. You know, energy loss from ultrasound, you know, speakers shooting towards one area in air, you know, R cubed is difficult, you know, to, to deal with. And uh, you need to, you know, be able to assess that um, and not just fall for just, you know, great storytelling as well. 
It's exciting for me personally to see some of these companies that are attacking really big issues, whether it be healthcare or things like uh, space or climate. But uh, as you look at history within tech and life sciences, there's usually been catalyzing events that have either been platforms or things that have really driven waves of innovation. That could be the internet, could be things like AWS that made building a software company much cheaper. Within the type of companies that you're looking at, which often are a little bit different than your traditional enterprise software company, are there any catalyzing events or platforms that you believe will drive the next generation of innovation within that space? Yeah, I think just as sort of, you know, AWS, um, you know, created the infrastructure that allowed for digital innovation to happen very quickly, I think you're seeing the same thing happening in physical innovation. Like uh, the sort of pithy one-liner that I like to give is in the 2010s, returns were largely defined by the world of bits. And that in the 2020s, the uh, returns were largely be defined by the world of atoms. Um, and the reason being that just as AWS allowed us to control bits very cheaply and precisely and much more easily with outsourced uh, companies, uh, the same thing is happening with the world of atoms. Whether it's in biotech, you can remotely, you you know, run an experiment now without actually having to open your own wet lab, uh, you know, to, you know, outsource metal 3D printing, where if you want a very complex metal part, you no longer need to build a manufacturing facility in-house, you know, outsource analysis, design, et cetera, everything that you need to like, let's take Varda as an example, right? A decade ago, Varda would have had to be a, you know, thousand to 3000 person company that raised on the order of two or three billion dollars, maybe at minimum, uh, to you know actually uh, you know get over the line um, and uh, you know come to fruition. Instead, today uh, I can buy a rocket off the shelf from SpaceX, Rocket Lab, Relativity on down. Um, I can buy a satellite off the shelf from you know Blue Canyon, Tyvek, uh, Rocket Lab. You know tons of companies that now offer that off the shelf, uh, and let alone all the other components, the radios, the batteries, the solar panels, right? Uh, and so I think what has changed a lot in the world of atoms is in order to have significant influence in the world of atoms, you no longer need to have nearly as many of the sort of core competencies entirely in house just as it happened in the world of bits, right? Uber no longer needed to have uh, expertise in building data centers. Um, the same thing is happening sort of like in the world of atoms across a multitude of industries. And so uh, I think it's a really exciting time. Is there gonna be as clear like a single platform like AWS? I don't think so as much. Like there might be one for biotech and you know one for aerospace and uh, you know one for materials manufacturing and things like that. Um, but you know I think uh, the much more interesting area where there's a lot more alpha over the next decade is definitely from this world of atoms. I mean, this continues that trend of reducing the uh, the amount of friction and cost of starting companies within whatever sector. And we've seen that even in things like semiconductor. I remember you know, in the 2000s, how much it, how much time and cost it took to get a chip to tape out. And now you look at it, it's a completely different world. It's really interesting to sort of think about where that goes. The other thing that I, I, I always think about is, you know, the world has also changed from a regional standpoint. I remember 10, 15 years ago, Silicon Valley was the only place where you'd start a company. And over the years, it changed to Silicon Valley, to global places like Israel, within the US, places like New York and LA. And now we're seeing more regional hubs be created. You're sitting in one right now in Miami, which I think you're gonna be the mayor of Miami pretty soon. But tell us a little bit about why places like Miami, for example. When Keith moved from San Francisco to Miami, he could have gone to a, a place that was already built out a little bit more like Austin or somewhere else that had 
similar tax benefits. You decided Miami, you decided Miami, you spent a lot of time there. Tell us what's unique about Miami. What ingredients do you need to have in a regional hub for it to be durable? Yeah, I mean, the reason that I got excited about moving to San Francisco originally was that like that was where I thought the really exciting, ambitious misfits were. And that was why I wanted to go work for Jack Dorsey. That guy was like fucking weird. He's still fucking weird. And like, but he clearly was going to do some really great things and wanted to make sure that I was like along for that ride. And you know, unfortunately, you know, just as, you know, uh, at the time when I was deciding when to move, you know, South Bay sort of felt like this, you know, fossil embedded inside of amber and frozen in time. Um, you know, it sort of, you know, felt like the same thing happened to San Francisco over the course of the, you know, roughly decade that I was there. Um, you know, the city's sort of local politics and, you know, sort of liberalism was completely unwilling to, you know, grow, expand, build new buildings. And that simple fundamental constraint caused it to freeze into an amber-like state because, unfortunately, startups grow exponentially. And so as they expand and as they become bigger, they took up more and more of the commercial office space, more and more of the, like, residential space for their employees to live in. And so at some point, it started to break at the seams where in 2012, as a you know college dropout, I could definitely afford to live in San Francisco. In 2019, 20, 21 in San Francisco, no way. The rent prices got like totally insane. And so the reason that we decided Miami over anywhere else was like, Austin feels like it's starting to have those exact same problems, and it's an extremely politically, you know, homogenous city. Uh, they're already starting to see signs of sort of, you know, breakage and unwillingness to build. Uh, I fear that it's sort of where, you know, San Francisco was in 2015-16. It's also just like not an international metropolis. Like the thing that I think has, you know, been really missing in the United States is, uh, you know, if you look at other countries, let's say like, you know, Japan, um, Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, they all have capitals that are uh, these just, you know, equatorial international true metropolises that have also been very pro-growth and very pro-tech, and that's what allows them to thrive. And we haven't had that in the United States. New York, yes, very international and a metropolis, not very, you know, pro-tech, not super pro-growth. San Francisco, yes, extreme tech, but again, not an international metropolis. If you talk to people that have lived in Dubai or London or Hong Kong, they're interested in, like, you know, moving to San Francisco, you know, quite limited. Versus it felt like Miami had this opportunity to, one, uh, be a very, you know, high quality of life, low cost of living, low taxes, but then two, also evolve over time into this, ideally, you know, my goal is I think we can make Miami the largest tech ecosystem, not only in the United States, but the entire world within a decade, because it turns out exponential curves grow quite quickly. And when the city doesn't try to artificially, you know, dampen those exponential curves, that can be quite attractive. And so I love that Miami has, you know, more cranes per block, uh, you know, per a three block radius here than like all of San Francisco, you know, combined. Uh, and in terms of the ingredients that you need, in some ways, you know, Miami is just getting such a crazy kickstart. If you look at ecosystems like New York and Austin, it started off with like a onesie, twosie, one founder, maybe one investor, et cetera. Uh, and so you kind of had to grow, you know, entirely organically and very slowly versus here you're just getting this sudden rush of like incredible investors like, you know, Dan Sundheim, Keith Redboy, Antonio Gracias from Valor. These are all, you know, three completely different archetypes, right? Antonio on the board of Tesla and SpaceX, one of the best deep tech investors of all time. Keith, one of the best fintech investors and broadly generalist investors of all time. You know, Dan Sundheim, one of the best crossover, you know, hedge funds of all time. All completely, you know, sort of different genres of investing, but all focused on technology. And what allows what it allows is that Miami sort of gets this jump start where like maybe New York took a decade to go from scratch to having, you know, five, six, seven IPOs of multi-billion dollar companies. I think San Francisco can do, or sorry, uh, Miami can do it much more quickly uh, because you're sort of getting this jump start on day one. And the Keiths and the Antonios and the Dan Sunheims of the world are much more able to both import entire companies, but the top executive talent, the engineers, et cetera, that you need. Uh, and then it's a much heavier draw. And so if you look at that sort of, you know, both 
where the you know exponential curve is starting, but then also the you know exponential rate of that curve, Miami's in a very great spot. Is it going to happen overnight? No, but you know I wouldn't be surprised that you know a decade from now, if you're looking at sort of tech IPOs, the amount that Miami is producing is on the order of or you know equivalent to um, you know San Francisco. Maybe it's not quite the majority because you know things will be so distributed, and then you know within 15 years, Miami actually being the largest ecosystem, uh, not only in the world but in the United States as well. Yeah, and it's a pretty ambitious vision. And, you know, you think about some of the regions that have done well, and it's really a combination in, in my mind of culture and particularly a government that supports a pro-tech type of environment. The second is there's local capital that is funding startups. And the third, there is talent. You spoke about the, you know, the first two a little bit, but tell us a little bit about talent. Why is talent going to places like Miami? And where are we in the, uh, in the curve within the Miami ecosystem for founders. I don't have a perfect like statistical data set, let's say, on this, but uh, we, you know, recently funded a Miami-based, born and raised company, Series A. Um, you know, it's actually going to be announced you know, tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Uh, so by the time this gets published, this will probably be uh, uh, live. So I'll just say it. The company's called, you know, Lula. It's an insured tech company. Uh, you know, $17 million round co-led by founders funding Coastal Ventures. A year, a year and a half ago, no way could this company get the attention of Silicon Valley VCs uh, uh, and say that we're, you know, they're going to be building the company in Miami. And no way could it attract sort of top tier, uh, you know, talent to move there. Since COVID and since this whole Francis Suarez thing, 100% flipped. They're pulling directors of engineering from, you know, Twitch and from Google and, you know, et cetera, really great, you know, companies from ecosystems like San Francisco, Seattle, New York, that previously these candidates would have never considered Miami. But now we're going through the exact same trade-off that the rest of us are going through, which is like, you know, I pay a lot of money for my rent and a lot of money in my taxes. And I don't know if I get much benefit. And this Miami thing seems pretty damn interesting. And so their ability to import, you know, raw local talent, uh, sort of raw, uh, you know, talent from abroad has significantly improved due to all of these, let's say, like high level changes in investors now being here. And again, is this going to happen overnight? No, but I'm really excited for, you know, the metric that I've been watching is like, I'd probably say that like today, there's probably three founders fund portfolio companies that have north of 10 employees in Miami. I'd say by the end of the year, I think that number will be closer to 10 companies. A year from today, I think that number will be closer to like 2025. 20, and that's where I get really excited because a lot of the like top tier founders, if you look at in San Francisco, they come from employees of other venture-backed companies. And so right now, is there a thriving ecosystem of lots of lots of founders that are like quote unquote born and raised in Miami? Not yet. But as these companies start to scale and as these local talents start to work at these companies, see how these venture-backed companies operate, they will be the pool of the future talent that I'm really looking forward to you know, funding in Miami. And so I think we'll have a much richer and deeper pool, let's say, two years from today, as you know, the open stores, the Lulus, uh, et cetera, of the world really start to scale up. Yeah. And, w- and without a doubt, I mean, the growth rate has been tremendous. And I know Twitter is not a, necessarily a, a great proxy always for reality, but even the folks that I know that have gone there even for a week or so. I've seen the energy Miami has, and it is going to be exciting to see how it grows. So I want to end a little bit with our heat check segment where I ask you three questions. I'm going to switch one up actually, but the first question I have for you is now you've been investing, you know, for a few years, what's the most counterintuitive lesson you've learned about being an investor? Maybe it sounds like somewhat, you know, trite, but one of the things that I feel like, you know, Keith taught me that's really, you know, nailed into my head is 
When considering any investment, the first question that should sort of be, you know, on your mind or one of the primary ones is like, why am I the right investor for this company? Like, you know, from afar, I would have thought like, oh, there's clearly like hot assets and your job as an investor is to just like invest in the like hottest assets or like the things that are most likely to generate the most returns. And that's what you should focus on. And I feel like it actually like kind of flipped it on its head and has been a very useful framework for me where it might lead to a somewhat similar outcome of like, yes, you're still generating the greatest returns, but the way to generate the greatest returns isn't to start with like, how do I generate the greatest returns? The question asked is, what is my differentiated advantage approach and why am I the right investor for this particular company? And that is much more likely to lead you to the best possible returns. Otherwise, you'll sort of revert towards the mean of like what everyone else is doing. And it turns out the mean in venture capital is not quite good, uh, not, not very good. And so, yeah, I guess that's one of those counterintuitive things that like, you know, rather than like analyzing why is this company a great company to invest in, it's actually more like analyze yourself and why are you a great investor that this company should want to have on the cap table. And then if you don't have a good answer for that question, it's not clear that you necessarily should be investing. Yeah. And I think the other side of the coin there, if you are aligning yourself to the, the type of companies and entrepreneurs that best fit you, you're also going to provide a better experience for those founders in helping them build their companies. And over the long term, all that really matters from a brand or reputation standpoint is what are you actually doing with founders and what did they say about you? And so totally get that. So you're always pretty open out there in the ether in terms of your opinions and your, what your vision of the future is. Thinking about bold predictions. And if we look at past 2021, we are in, I would say, kind of an insane environment right now with so much capital flowing around. Valuations have obviously gone way up there. Exit values of companies are also way up there. What's your bold prediction for 2022? I mean, I think the the train's only going to continue on, right? If you have this ecosystem where, you know, companies are, you know, figuring out how to allocate capital productively and actually generate incredible innovations, right? You know, maybe an artificial government version of this being the, you know, warp speed program, basically enabling like mRNA technologies to exist. The macro capital environment is effectively doing the same thing where we're just like willing to throw far more capital at problems that previously felt impossible. And it's fine if a series of them fail, right? If you take the like tiger approach of like, let's throw a hundred million dollars at every single Silicon Valley company. It's like, Two or three years ago, people would have critiqued that approach and be like, actually, that doesn't work. Uh, you know, like Sopping's returns actually don't look that bad now that you've got, you know, you know, DoorDash and a couple of other companies, you know, going public. And, you know, I think that's um endemic of sort of like, you know, the, the ecosystem as a whole, which is like, I think it will only, you know, continue where the number of, you know, net new venture capital firms, the number of unicorns being produced, the number of like really core innovations that are getting that are progressing is only going to continue to accelerate. Like, I think humans are just really bad at predicting and understanding exponential curves. Like, I've been watching the space industry now for a decade, and I think because of that, I can understand the exponential curve that space has been on, and it is perfectly tracking towards, like, you know, when I started paying attention to it in 2012, this exponential pace that, like, leads me to say statements that other people seem as say, say are, is particularly crazy, but it's like, I believe that by 2030, we will not only have 100, but hundreds of people living in low Earth orbit and operating there for not just research reasons, but there for actual, uh, you know, commercial, you know, reasons being up there. And I'm sure people that are more sophisticated in the world of, you know, bio, materials, et cetera, could also make just as wild of predictions about these, like, other areas. And so that's maybe, obviously, a further out prediction, but it is the best time to be starting, you know, deep tech, you know, companies, especially if you have a, you know, clear swing and story to tell. And I think it's only going to get better and better and better and the pace of innovation 
division is only going to continue to increase. And so, you know, when people complain about, you know, is progress, you know, slowing down or speeding up, I'm definitely on the side of I love you, progress, you know, studies institute, but progress is definitely speeding up. And it ties to everything you've been talking about, how you we've reduced the cost of infrastructure to allow these things to happen. And, and so it sounds like your prediction, 2022, the train continues to go. We continue to see funding as, at, a, at a high level. We continue to see these outcomes. But we also see these companies that will build multi-multi-billion dollar outcomes that are focused on things that are really hard, things like space. So, And I don't want to be presumptive in, in this last question, but you, you've worked with a lot of different investors, both at Founders and Coastal, and probably even before that as, a, as an entrepreneur. But is there an investor out there that particularly inspires you that, you know, you study and you believe has the type of framework that best resonates with you? Who is that and what is it about them that really resonates with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've obviously worked with a variety of, you know, investors and I, I there's a ton of things that inspire me <clears throat> about all of them. But if there were one investor that I could point to of like, this is the archetype that I would like to aim for and what I really aspire to in my career. Um, it probably is actually Vinod Kosla. I think he does an incredible job of being extremely deep across so many different types of technologies, everything from semiconductors to biotechnology to space, uh, all these different types of things, and is willing to you know invest at the very early stages and back up the truck into companies. Um, hell, take a look at QuantumScape. Coastal Ventures funded that company, I think, originally in like 2011 or something like that. And they've continually backed up the truck over the course of a decade, you know, now leading to this, you know, SPAC. I think there are very few investors that have that level of conviction in these types of deep technology companies that can also marry it with a both like, you know, philanthropic side and, uh, you know, a sort of storytelling side that I think Vinod is actually like, you know, quite, um, you know, quite good at. And so, yeah, I definitely, you know, admire his breadth. And I think I've done a great job of learning a lot about material science, about fiber optics, about, you know, space, about home construction. And I've got some like, core areas of expertise that I feel like I'm at the tip of the field of. Um, and I hope to be able to, you know, expand that over time. And, uh, you know, I think that definitely takes decades of reading, you know, um, various research papers, but, you know, it's impressive, you know, Vinod literally, yeah, wakes up every day and he's got like whatever five nature articles, you know, on his, you know, desk every day that he like, you know, chows through and, uh, you know, make sure to stay you know, up to speed. And I, you know, aspire to be able to do that as well. Do you agree with his statement that 90% of VCs actually destroy value? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's like, you know, quite that extreme, but yeah, definitely, you know, most are, most are not super helpful. The one quote of his that, you know, I really believe in the most and, you know, think about all the time is uh, the team you build is the company you build. Um, and so, you know, definitely, you know, take that to heart across both the investments that I consider a lot of the time, it's mostly just like analyzing the broader team more so than like studying the strategy or the metrics. And then similarly with Varda, you know, we probably spend in our exec team meetings, 80 or 90 percent of the time just talking about recruiting team building who are we bringing on like uh, that's almost where we put all of our efforts well this has been a lot of fun man i really appreciate you being on look forward to seeing you in person and uh again congrats on uh getting varda off the ground and, and doing all the great stuff you're doing at founders sweet well yeah thanks so much for having me on thanks so much for listening to another episode of venture unlocked we really hope you enjoyed our conversation with delian to learn more about him and Founders Fund, be sure to go to ventureunlock.substack.com for detailed notes on the show and my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.